As you're seated, if you turn again in the scriptures now to Revelation in chapter 5, we'll give attention to the reading of God's Word. We have a peering into the throne room of heaven and those many who are present and their response to the Lord God. Hear then the Word of God, Revelation 5. And I saw in the right hand of him that sat on the throne a book written within and on the backside, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the book and to loose the seals thereof? And no man in heaven nor in earth, neither under the earth, was able to open the book neither to look thereon. And I wept much, because no man was found worthy to open and to read the book, neither to look thereon. One of the elders saith unto me, Weep not. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, hath prevailed to open the book and to loose the seven seals thereof. And I beheld And lo, in the midst of the throne and of the four beasts, and in the midst of the elders stood a lamb, as it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, sent forth into all the earth. And he came and took the book out of the right hand of him that sat upon the throne, And when he had taken the book, the four beasts and four and twenty elders fell down before the Lamb, having every one of them harps and golden vials full of odors, which are the prayers of saints. And they sung a new song, saying, Thou art worthy to take the book and to open the seals thereof, for thou wast slain and hast redeemed us to God by thy blood out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation, and has made us unto our God kings and priests, and we shall reign on the earth. And I beheld, and I heard the voice of many angels round about the throne, and the beasts, and the elders, and the number of them was ten thousand times ten thousand, and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. And every creature which is in heaven and on the earth and under the sea or under the earth and such as are in the sea and all that are in them heard I saying, Blessing and honor and glory and power be unto him that sitteth upon the throne and unto the Lamb forever and ever. And the four beasts said, Amen. And the four and twenty elders fell down and worshipped Him that liveth forever and ever. Spar God's Word. Just note in passing that switching of the focus upon the Lamb of God, as it is noted, a Lamb as it had been slain. The Lamb, and indeed the One who has redeemed us to God, brings forth such overwhelming praise that is shown with the greatest of reverence. They fall down and worship Him that liveth forever and ever. Reverence is not a display of sinful or carnal terror, nor is it contrary to the richest, clearest perception of Christ, grace, love, salvation. It is the only right manner of worship by us in this world and by the saints in the world to come. Reverence and awe, those twin words that Hebrews reminds us of. And we'll see that here this evening as well 
as we seek the Lord's blessing. Would you stand with me for prayer? Let us pray. God in heaven, we acknowledge that were heaven rolled back and we peering into the throne room of which we have just read, there is not one of us who would be unmoved. Each one of us would fall down with the twenty and four elders to worship Him that lives forever. Father, we acknowledge that in this life we may often have reverent displays with irreverence in our hearts. And we, with confusion, may think of reverence as something that is unfitting. The love, the joy, the gladness that floods the heart of the believer. And so we confess, Lord, that we have need of instruction. We confess, moreover, that we have need of grace that we would better know You, the true and living God, Father and Son and Spirit, that we would better know Your goodness displayed throughout creation and particularly that saving goodness which is manifested in the Gospel of our Savior Jesus Christ. And that by Your grace, applying these rich and saving truths to us, that You would fill us with the joy of the Lord, that as we sang earlier, we would count it a joy and rejoice to enter into the presence of God in worship by the mediation of Christ our Savior. And yet that we would do so as is fitting and right, both in earth and in heaven, acknowledging that God, He is God alone. Though we have been given much, indeed, immeasurable grace. Yet never will this destroy that fact that you are glorious and majestic and worthy of the abasing of ourselves with gladness and the satisfying delight that comes in lowering ourselves that God alone would have the glory. To that end, bless now your word to us. May it be that as it is preached, it would go forth faithfully And, O Lord, in the Spirit's ministry powerfully to bring forth praise and glory to Your name. So forgive us our sins and bless us now. We ask it in the name of Him who is worthy, even the Lamb of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. As you see, you turn then to Exodus 34. We come now to verse 8. And... Having been away just a week, we'll read again the context, Exodus 34 from 5 to 9. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. And the Lord passed by before him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abundant in goodness and truth keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, and that will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and upon the children's children unto the third and to the fourth generation. And Moses made haste and bowed his head toward the earth and worshipped. And he said, If now I have found grace in thy sight, O Lord, let my Lord, I pray thee, go among us, for it is a stiff-necked people. Pardon our iniquity and our sin, and take us for thine inheritance. Well, it's particularly Moses' response to the Lord's self-proclamation that is before us. Verse 8, And Moses made haste and bowed his head toward the earth and worshipped. We've noted many times that earlier, the chapter preceding, God has stated that no man shall see my glory, no man can see my glory and live. That the glorious truth of God is of such infinite majesty that it would consume 
our frail frames. And so God set about to proclaim His goodness, which we've considered over the past number of weeks. He descended, proclaimed His name. The Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, and so on. And while He did not consume Moses by this proclamation, as would have been done had the Lord given the unmediated display of His glory, Yet he did overawe Moses, as we see in our text. Notice, so soon as this rather condensed and simple and yet quite full testimony is given, Moses quickly humbles himself. He falls upon the earth and bows. Notice the language of the text. It says, and Moses... The idea is that so soon as this happens and God declares, now Moses is finding himself down on the ground. He's bowing himself with this revelation of God's goodness. Moses, notice, made haste to do so. He didn't stay back and say, well, what's the fitting response here? You know, God's just given a declaration of Himself and culturally, you know, this, and what is right about that? No, it was a gracious instinct to fall before Him, which is displayed regularly throughout the Scriptures. It says that He made haste, He hurried, and bowed His head. The head, of course, is that most noble part of man's body. We talk about one's countenance and how it can shine. And one glimpse of a face can often tell us much without words being mentioned. It's most expressive. There's no other part of our body as expressive as the face. And so our hands can, of course, be taught sign language. And yet a glimpse of a face is able to convey much to us because of the nobility that the Lord has given to that portion of our body. And yet, the most noble of man's parts is bowed, put down. Oftentimes, it's explicitly stated that he places his face in the dust of those who are worshiping the Lord. And then it says that he did it toward the earth. So he's lowering himself in the display of God's goodness. And notice the simplicity of the language and worshipped. But what's interesting is this word that is rightly translated worshipped, so frequently translated worship, is actually another word for bowing. In fact, both in the Old Testament and the New Testament, the most commonly used word in Hebrew and Greek for worship is a word that has to do with prostration thrusting oneself down, lowering oneself. So he worships the Lord because of God's goodness. And yet, to be clear, he worships the Lord most reverently, humbly, humbling himself at the proclamation of God's goodness. What we see in the text is what the rest of Scripture confirms so frequently that the revelation of God's grace and goodness brings forth reverent worship in His people. It is not something that in many ways even needs to be taught. Moses didn't have to go through a course to say, when this happens, get on your face. He didn't have to be instructed to say, you know, when this happens, do that. It was a gracious and holy instinct. It is throughout the Scriptures, of course, in various ways. The angels are made with wings. And in Isaiah 6, of course, there's the covering of their faces and their bodies and their feet. There is elsewhere the bowing of oneself before the Lord so regularly indicated. You can see, for instance, an example of this in Genesis in chapter 24. Genesis in chapter 24. 
where we see the two ideas brought together again of bowing and worshiping. So Genesis in chapter 24, notice here is Abraham's servant going to get a spouse, a wife for Abraham's son. And there at verse 48, when it is that he discovers that there is a suitable spouse, it says, I bowed down my head and worshipped the Lord and blessed the Lord God of my master Abraham, which had led me in the right way to take my master's brother's daughter unto his son. Now notice what's going on. It's a merciful provision. It is a gracious kindness. It is a generosity of the Lord that this servant of Abraham is experiencing. He is elated. He's glad. He is rejoicing. But what is he doing? He's bowing down to worship. You can see it's not only, of course, related to those glad circumstances. There are, of course, the prostrating of people who are contrary to God. And yet, notice, for instance, Second Chronicles. Again, a display of this truth. We could spend an hour going through examples of this point. But notice, for instance, in chapter 20 of Second Chronicles, when it is that God's people are told of the Lord's mercies. So in verse 17, they're told, Ye shall not need to fight in this battle. Set yourselves, stand ye still, and see the salvation of the Lord with you, O Judah and Jerusalem. Fear not, nor be dismayed. Tomorrow go out against them, for the Lord will be with you. And Jehoshaphat bowed his head with his face to the ground, and all Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem fell before the Lord, worshiping the Lord. Levites, of course, the Kohathites, the Korites, join in the praise of God in their priestly manner. But what's the point? It's that with the provision of mercy, with the testimony of God's goodness and grace, His faithfulness, His kindness, His generosity, His provision, His forgiveness, all of these things again and again are met by God's people with a humbling of themselves and gladness to worship God. Why is that so? It's because though His grace is not in and of itself the fullness of His glory, His grace is truly glorious. It is incomparably so. We saw this in a hint in Isaiah 55. My ways are not your ways. My thoughts are not your thoughts. As he's talking of both the free offer of the Gospel and the effect of grace that that Gospel would bring forth. We see it throughout the Scriptures, this truth, that the grace of God, the goodness of God is of such glory, such weight, that it bows us down. Have you ever thought of the word glory? It is a word which means weight. And the glory of God's grace is a thing that gladly brings us down. So we wish to see this response by looking at three things. Firstly, the meaning of worship. Secondly, the display of worship. Thirdly, the cause of worship. Not as the only cause, but particularly as it is in this text. The meaning, the display, and the cause. What is the meaning of worship? It would be impossible for us to give an exhaustive treatment in one point of a sermon, but we can see it displayed here, of course, and we can search elsewhere. Fundamentally, worship is to acknowledge the honor and glory that belongs to God alone. And so, it's sometimes shocking to us, we see in Old English, the term worship used among men, not in a religious sense, but rather it is using the word in its customary way of acknowledging the honor of one superior to them. And so, you would speak of a king as your worship. And it's not speaking of it in a religious sense, but of his worthiness is the notion. These two words are quite closely related in our English. Worship 
and worth or worthiness. And so when we talk of worship, we're talking of that offering up of the acknowledgement that belongs unto one truly glorious. And in religious worship, there is, of course, only one who is worthy of such worship. It is God who is Himself most glorious. This is the response that is appropriate to the transcendent majesty of the true and living God. We've mentioned already Isaiah 6. It's so familiar to us. We hardly need to turn there. But you can see Isaiah sees the Lord high and lifted up. Think of that. He's exalted. And the angels that are near unto Him are covering themselves and yet flying about and they never cease crying out, Holy, Holy, Holy. They are ascribing and acknowledging and resoundingly so the glorious holiness of God. We'll sing later in the Lord's mercies from Psalm 95. And you can turn there and you'll see this notion again that worship is the ascribing, the acknowledging of that glory unto God. Psalm 95 at verse 1, the call to worship comes. O come, let us sing unto the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise unto the rock of our salvation. Let us come before His presence with thanksgiving and make a joyful noise unto Him with psalms. As if to answer the question, why should we do that? The next verse tells us, For the Lord is a great God and a great King above all gods. It speaks of His power and so on. Notice verse 6. O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our Maker, for He is our God. This glorious God who transcends even our imagination of what power, wisdom, and honor is, is worthy of our worship, and yet He's our God. And we bow down before Him. Well, again, we can see this throughout the Scriptures, but it's sufficient, isn't it, to note that worship is that giving to God the glory, as the psalmist says elsewhere, that is due unto His name. This is why, for instance, heaven never ends. Because God is worthy of finite creatures giving unceasing praise to His name. And what's most encouraging to the saint is so will they be renewed that they will find it no burden, no difficulty, no sacrifice, but their utmost joy to remain and persist and persevere in the non-stop intake of God's display of Himself to us through Christ and the giving back of worship unto His name, such as the privilege of the saints. You can think of the meaning of worship if you look just in the aspect of public worship, the elements of public worship and general prayer and singing of psalms and reading of God's Word, preaching of God's Word, giving of the benediction, and then of course the sacraments, these primary elements are all taken up with a focus upon God. Not one of them is focused upon man. Not one. Prayer, we lift up our desires as an explicit testimony, we can't bring forth what we desire. And so we lift them up to God. And we lift them up according to God's Word. Not our own inventions, not our own imaginations. So we're gathering God's Word and we're taking it to God who alone is able to hallow His name. Who alone is able to bring forth His kingdom, cause His will to be done, give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our sins, and so on. We take them to God because there's no one here in this world who is able to give us these things which we so desperately need. Prayer is essentially God-focused and oriented because He alone has the honor and the glory and the power to bring these things to pass. Sung praise. To whom do we sing? We sing, of course, to God. We sing His Word to Himself. And we do so with a Psalter that is filled with the glorious testimony of His goodness, of His power, of His works, of His tenderness, 
of the effects of that and the conviction of sin and the lowliness of our trials and yet his faithfulness to uphold of his judging of the heathen of all of these things the psalter is god saturated it's full of god what do we read we read god's word and so timothy's told to give attention to reading and so the reading of god's word is preeminent in god's worship why because we're hearing from god isn't it striking when people shorten God's reading to a verse or two, what actually is happening is there is the attempted silencing of God. God's Word is big and full in our worship because we're hearing from God. And the same is His preeminent means ordained, the preaching of His Word. Because it is the declaration and the heralding of the will of God, the benediction, God's blessing pronounced unto us, the sacraments, His uh, signs and seals which speak to us of Himself and of His goodness and grace. All of worship is all fixed upon, focused upon God. So that when there is true worship, there's actually this great mystery that takes place where we feel simultaneously tremendously small we feel in one sense insignificant in the presence of so glorious a god and yet in that same moment we feel this is what i was made for this is my joy this is my delight to know that god alone is worthy of worship that he alone is worthy of honor there's nothing in worship of accolades to this man and that man and praise be to this person and that person. Worship is fixed upon God. And when it is that we're brought low and God is made much of, it's the strange reality that we finally feel for as it were a fresh and perhaps a first time, now I know what it is to live. The reason for that, of course, is because you were made for this purpose. You were made to fix all of your affection upon God. You were made to take in the display of God and to give glory back to God. And when that happens, it's happening as it should. But of course, men have corrupted worship in many ways. This worship is the right response to the true understanding of God. We saw several examples of that already. We can see just a couple more. Notice, for instance, 1 Kings, familiar passage, chapter 18. Elijah is contending with the prophets of Baal. What is it that happens when the people see the display of the one true God? Well, you'll see it. You know it, in fact, already. But there in chapter 18 of 1 Kings, in verse 37, Elijah, having prepared the altar, says now in prayer, Hear me, O Lord, hear me, that this people may know that Thou art the Lord God, and that Thou hast turned their heart back again. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt sacrifice and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and they said, The Lord, He is the God. The Lord, He is the God. Elijah didn't have to prepare them and say, when this happens, get on your faces. He didn't have to say, when this is displayed and you see the display of what I've just prayed, that He's returned to turn you back to Him. What's that a testimony of but mercy and grace? He's not saying, you know, when you get that and you understand it, then it's appropriate to humble yourself. It happens right away. God is great, we're small. God is enormous. He is transcendently infinite and perfect. And so soon as this display hits them and they understand and discern it, they feel the necessity to acknowledge it and fall down and say, God only is worthy. See other examples of it, but for the sake of time, brethren, Notice as well, now secondly, 
the display of worship. So the meaning of worship is to give the Lord the glory that is due unto His name. To ascribe to Him what it is that is His. So you think of this, He reveals Himself, and worship is the response to that revelation saying, that's true. You are the one and only God. Your goodness is indeed good. Your holiness is indeed holy. All of these things, of course. Well, secondly, the display of worship. Circumstances may differ. Public worship versus private worship versus secret worship. And each of those will have some little nuance that would be fitting. But we can notice the display of worship in its essence here by firstly that the display of worship is always joined with reverence unto God. It's never without it. In fact, where there is irreverence, we can say there is a deficiency in worship. And you see that with Moses. He hears the pronouncing of God's name. He hears its proclamation. God is drawing near and He's saying, I'm not going to show you my glory because if I did that, you would be consumed. No man can see it and survive. I'm going to show you my goodness. And so he passes by, proclaims his name. And we've considered these things just to remind you. This eternal God who is merciful, gracious, long-suffering, abundant in goodness and mercy and truth. Goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. And in order that we presume not, he says, that will by no means clear the guilty, and so on. So, Moses hears the testimony of God's grace. Pardon of sin. His long-suffering. And unlike a carnal mind, which would say, well, then this is all good. You know, let's get on with life, and we can scope out what we want to do, and, you know, go about our own plans. Moses plants himself on the ground. Why? Because he knows he's in the presence of one truly great. He doesn't lift up his hands with a hooting and hollering that mimics animals in their irrational and exuberant consideration of stimulus, but rather, as one who is made in the image of God, he humbles himself. It's a strange thing that people have equated joy in worship with the scenes of carnality. When the Bible is full of joy in worship with simplicity and reverence. There are shouts, yes, on occasions. There are smiles, yes, but it's always with reverence to God. You see it in Moses. One of the clearest testimonies of God's mercy ever with simplicity and a condensed form given. This potent package of God's grace is delivered to Moses and he doesn't start jumping around and making a fool of himself. He places himself before this God and says, I must worship you. We'll see next week or a week after the Lord willing how it is that this leads to prayer. For now, simply notice that this worship is characterized by reverence. This is as it always is. It's to God Himself and His making note of Himself. We talked just briefly about the ordinances of worship, all of which are saturated with God, His revelation, and uh, founded upon His revelation. And so if that's the case, of course, it will lead us to reverence God. But you can see it as well toward His ordinances, the things that He has established for worship itself. So one such ordinance is prayer, which Moses will go on to when he says in verse 9, If now I have found grace in Thy sight, O Lord, let my Lord, I pray Thee. And you can hear the tones of reverence. If now I pray Thee, I plead with Thee. He doesn't come as God's equal, and He doesn't come with the presumption of a spoiled brat. He comes with one who is truly known the true and living God. And he plants himself low. And in this exercise of faith and love, he is humble before the Lord. He's reverent 
But this isn't something peculiar to Moses. It characterizes every aspect of the right handling of God's ordinances. Some are reading right now through that plan that will plant them presently in Josiah's Reformation. And so his father dies and Josiah is made king. So you can see this in 2 Kings and chapter 23. And what's striking, of course, is all of us know by the name of Josiah, we know, if we know any good king, we know Josiah. He was a reformer. He was one who was made to walk in the ways of God. And yet, what somehow often escapes the attention is that his love and honor to the Lord was shown with a reverent handling of the ordinances of God's worship. So he's not abstractly righteous. He's not abstractly a good king. He is good and fearing and loving the Lord and in rightly executing reformation of God's ordinances. And if ever one wants to know what reformation is, here's a good chapter to see it. So, among other examples, we can look at uh, chapter 23, verses 4 and 5. And you'll notice here the king, speaking of Josiah, commanded Hilkiah the high priest and the priests of the second order and the keepers of the door to bring forth out of the temple of the Lord all the vessels that were made for Baal and for the grove and for all the host of heaven. And he burned them without Jerusalem and in the fields of Kidron and carried the ashes of them unto Bethel. He put down the idolatrous priests whom the kings of Judah had ordained to burn incense in the high places in the cities of Judah and in the places round about Jerusalem, them that had also that burned incense unto Baal, to the sun, and to the moon, and to the planets, and to all the host of heaven. You can read through the whole chapter, and you see again and again, Josiah is casting out the corruptions of false worship that have entered into Jehovah's worship. He's purging it. Doesn't that remind you of someone who when he entered into the temple and saw the corruptions, he overturned the money changers' tables. This is characteristic of those who love God. And when Christ was turning over the tables, what did He say? It is written, My house shall be a house of what? Prayer. It's not that there wasn't some propriety in money changers existing, but the problem was they had entered so near into the temple that they had made it merely a way to get rich. It's like the payday loan idea. Of course, there may be need to assist those who are poor, and yet the whole payday loan scheme is just continuing the servitude of those who will never be able to get out of their debt. Well, Christ sees something similar in a place that was to be characterized by prayer, the ordinance of prayer in the temple. He says this can't be tolerated. So Josiah, you see as well later in this chapter, verse 21, when it's said, And the king commanded all the people, saying, Keep the Passover unto the Lord your God. But notice this important statement. As it is written in the book of this covenant. It doesn't just say go and do it, but make sure you're managing it according to how it is written in God's Word. Now, there's a striking parallel to the New Testament ordinance of the Lord's Supper. And when the impurities broke out in 1 Corinthians and the church of Corinth, 1 Corinthians noted, chapter 11, what does Paul do? He reproves them. He says there in 1 Corinthians 11 at verse 20, when ye come together, Therefore, into one place, this is not to eat the Lord's Supper. He points out the perversion that's taken place. And then notice what he does. He reforms it. 4, verse 23, I have received of the Lord that which also I delivered unto you. And he goes through the institution of the Lord's Supper. This is what reform is. It's not the making up of new ordinances. It's not the searching out how did people do it in the past and that sort of fits with a greater sense of dignity and glory and beauty. And so we're going to bring that in. 
No, true biblical reform, both under the Old and under the New Testament, is a reforming of our practices according to the Word of God. It's purging out what God did not intend and what Christ did not ordain, and it's establishing more clearly our practice to be in accordance with what is written. Go and observe the Passover as it is written in the Book of the Covenant. You need to reform the Lord's Supper. I've received of the Lord that which also I delivered unto you. And so where there is worship, there will be, where there's right worship, there will be the display of reverence toward God and toward His ordinances. There will also be, as Moses so clearly illustrates, the humbling of ourselves. There's no fear of one who truly knows God of ever making himself too small. There's fear of one who doesn't understand God doing so. There's fear of not understanding God's grace as if, well, if I make myself too low, am I still loved of God? But the one who is persuaded of God's love, the one who stands as Moses did and said, that's true, has no hesitation to say, I'm nothing. Without any loss of love, joy, and gladness. Moses places himself low. He made haste to do it. And yet he petitions the Lord then for grace. You see, he's not misunderstanding. God doesn't say, no, no, Moses, you've misunderstood. I'm a God of grace. Didn't you just hear me? I'm the Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious. I'm abundant in these things. I forgive sin, iniquity and transgression. Get up, Moses. It's okay. Get the dust off of your face. And, you know, let's get back to what we were supposed to be. No. God is honored by this. And Moses is rightly humbling himself. There can be, of course, a carnal abasing of ourselves where, like the Roman Catholic monks and priests of old where they would injure themselves, put on shirts made of hair, and go through tormenting, agonizing difficulties, self-inflicted, and so on. Martin Luther, of course, himself lived it firsthand. But that's not this kind of gracious abasement and humili- uh, humbling of ourselves. The kind that's before us is the soul that is persuaded of the glorious grace of God and the unworthiness of ourselves that then brings itself low in confidence and rests upon these things. And yet notice the resting is, how can we even say it? It's a rest that leads to activity. He humbles himself and with great clarity leans upon the foundation set before him and pleads for the grace that has been promised. And brethren, this of course is displayed again and again throughout the Bible. So you think for a moment, Christ assures us that our Father hears our prayers. And yet then He says, ask, seek, knock. And the Greek is quite instructive. It's ask and with the sense of keep asking. Don't stop asking. Always be asking. Seek. Don't stop seeking. Keep seeking. Knock. Keep knocking. The psalmist tells us that we look unto the Lord until to us He mercy send. Presumption and casual indifference is not a mark of grace. Casual comfort is not gracious. It's carnal. True grace stirs up the heart such that we fall low before the Lord. We humble ourselves and not with some strange, sinful, wicked delight and pain, but with the joyous gladness of knowing God is great and we are not. And He's my God. We humble ourselves and cast ourselves upon Him. 
That's what it means to humble ourselves before the Lord. It's not that we are manufacturing evil thoughts about ourselves. It's that we're both acknowledging our littleness as creatures, which, of course, there's an infinite difference between God and the creature, but also acknowledging that we have sinned against this God who promises goodness to us. Someone might say, well, that's the Old Testament. We'd like to say, since when was the Old Testament irrelevant to the believer? But we can answer the objection by a passage read earlier. If ever there is a time, place of perfect joy, gladness, and delight, it's heaven. There's no carnality in heaven. There's no sinful fear in heaven. There's no, you know, out of alignment or out of proportion affections in heaven. All is perfect. All is as it should be. All is gracious. All is gladness. All is joy. And yet, as we saw in Revelation 5, when the fixation becomes the Lamb who is about to display His goodness and His sovereignty, what happens to the angels who have no sin, number one, and the saints who have been perfected and thus are without sin and have a more glorious sight of Christ than we presently do, what happens is they all fall down and worship Him. They see themselves still as small. They realize we're only here because You've redeemed us. Worthy is the Lamb who has redeemed us out of every tribe and tongue and people and so on. The blood of the Lamb which cleanses us from sin. All of this is before them and they realize they are unworthy of it. And yet it's without any sinful doubts. It's without any sort of uh, personal and exaggerated misunderstanding. All is right and good and glad. And so, it is that they humble themselves. That Christ would receive the glory that is His. And what is true of the saints in heaven in this is increasingly true of the saints in earth. Whereby we start to grow and realize, you know what, most of the evangelical church has this entirely backwards. It's not always been that way in the evangelical church. It's not always been that way in the church of Christ Jesus. But as you look at the past 150 years, there's been a massive change in the display of worship. And what becomes prominent in most displays of worship of broad evangelicalism today is personality and charismatic gifts of personality. And so light shows, fixation upon men and women doing their skillful uh, things and all of the coordinated efforts to move men and so on to the elation of shouting and hand clapping and all of these things. Brethren, if you search the Scriptures, if you search the Scriptures, you'll be struck by how out of accord that is with the worship of God's name in the Scriptures. Someone says, well, David, you know, he leapt before the ark of the Lord. Yeah, and that wasn't public worship. That was a celebration of a civil deliverance. Yes, giving thanks to God. But what do you see David doing in public worship? You see him humbling himself. What's the point? The church has not read the Bible well. There's nothing out of accord with joy and reverence. There's nothing out of accord with joy and humility. In fact, where there is joy in the Lord, who is our strength, there will be a confident self-humbling of relying and delighting to rely upon Him. Well, brethren, the cause of all of this, as has been noted, is a true knowledge of God. 
God makes Himself known to Moses, truly, clearly. And this is what brings forth Moses' response. God doesn't speak and say, you misunderstood Moses, I said this, but you took it to mean that. No, all is in accordance with God's revelation. So the point is this delighting, glad, humbling of ourselves and giving glory to God flows out of a right perceiving of the truth of God. You speak to aged saints who have walked with the Lord. They're characterized by this weightiness of soul. They're characterized by this realization that we have, they know God. J.I. Packer's Knowing God, this classic work in the past 50 years or so, is such a work that highlights this point. That when you see in the Scriptures those who know God, they are grounded and they're often on the ground. The same is true with various ones that you and I have met that have walked with the Lord, that speak and their words have a weight to them. They aren't captivated by the nonsense of the current age. They're captivated by God. And in knowing God, they show forth the glory of His name in this reverent and joy-filled worship of Him. Brethren, we can go further. The cause of this is not just generally a true knowledge of God, but as is here made known, it's a true knowledge of God's goodness. That where God's goodness is known, this worship will follow. We can say it the other way, can't we? Where this worship is not followed, God's goodness is not truly known. Where God makes known Himself with power, when God makes known His grace with power, it brings forth this sense that then issues forth in a humble adoring and giving of honor to this God. The world would hear all that's been said and say, well, that's not joy. You would say, well, it's not carnal joy. You're right. It's not filled with loudspeakers. It's not filled with light shows and smoke and so on. But there is a volume that they don't hear. And it's the volume of the deafening glory of God's grace. When something's loud, it actually has a physical impact. Of course, there are sound waves that are hitting us. But when there's a massive blast, it makes us go low. And so it is with the revelation of God's grace and goodness. When it's loud, when it's turned up, it makes us go low, not out of fear, but out of the overwhelming sense that is great and we don't compare to it. We are, as it were, displaying the goodness of God in lowering ourselves and saying, all is His, all is His. Jehovah, He is the God. Well, Brethren, if we would worship God more sincerely, we must better know Him. We must, by His grace, draw near to Him and always emphasize by His grace, as Moses did. How is it that we'll come to know Him? Well, it's by His self-proclamation. This is a particular aspect of that. But we have the whole of His proclamation in His Word. From Genesis to Revelation is the proclamation of Himself, His nature, His uh, uh, works, His purpose, His promises, His salvation, His commandments. All is the revelation of Himself. And the more we become familiar with the Bible and we studiously give ourselves to it in prayer, drawing near through Christ to know it, the more that this will be realized in us, the more we'll be satisfied, as Spurgeon spoke of, of simply being in the presence of Christ silently on our own. 
this world of incessant gadgets that are ever telling us of this notification and that notification, our watches buzz, our pockets buzz, the thing bings, and all of these things are going on. There's a need and a delight for the Christian to say, I'm done with it. I'm setting it aside for this season to have Christ before me and to make myself small as He makes Himself big. I delight to be in the presence of Christ. All of this other stuff is a distraction. And I long to be in His presence. How much more in public worship? The reading of God's Word comes and someone says, well, that's a long chapter. And yet the believer by grace is maturing to say, praise God that we get to hear more of His Word. Family worship starts little and yet it matures over time. A verse was read for the first few weeks or months and now a larger passage and then a chapter's read and perhaps it was only in the morning, now it's morning and evening. Perhaps as we grow and we retire, we have multiple sessions throughout the day of worship in our home because this is what we were made for, to worship God. It's not a distraction to us. It's not a something that we fit in the calendar. It's what we form our calendar around. The worship of God, public worship, family worship, secret worship. We love to be small in the presence of this great and gracious God. His written Word conveys this knowledge. His incarnate Word, which is made known to us in the written Word, is of course the revelation of the Father so we love all of God's Word and we love how all of His Word makes known to us Jesus Christ. As a minister in the Free Church, died in the early 1900s if I'm not mistaken, and he mentioned how he, in his early ministry, sought to preach primarily from the epistles of Paul, which he didn't regret, but he noted in his later years that he was finding it a mistake, an imbalance, that he neglected to preach more directly of the person and work of Christ from the Gospels. And he balanced that by saying it's not that we should only be in the Gospels, but we ought to be much in the Gospels because it brings together so many threads of the Old and Testament into the person and ministry of Christ and it presents to us Him most directly. Surely we in our private readings have the same sense. Well, here is a rebuke as well to all irreverent worship, the flippant, the casual, the cool, all of this man-centered, unwarranted, sinful offering of our day. How can that be if God isn't changed? God isn't changed. He hasn't become good having been cruel. He hasn't become good having been just. He hasn't become good having been something other than that. We see it here. And for some reason, the enemy of much evangelicalism today, the Old Testament. And it's God proclaiming His goodness, His grace, His forgiving grace, His mercies, His kindness, all of this which brings forth reverence, worship, and glad adoration of the living God. The magnifying of His grace. We may come boldly. In fact, we should say we must come boldly. Christ has commanded it in His Word. We should come gladly and joyfully, even as we sing in Psalm 100. But all of this in no way displaces Reverence. Gladness and reverence are twins. Joy and reverence are bound together. And they always have been, and they always shall be for all eternity. This is your great calling to which you have been called to show forth the praises of Him who hath called you by His grace. Paul speaks of the glory of His grace in Ephesians 1. And that's what Moses is faced with here. I am but dust 
my face perhaps is face toward the dust because that's what I am. That's what I've been made from. That's what my body will return to. And when Christ comes, that's what my body will be restored from and resurrected from. I am not worthy of this. And yet I worship the One who makes this known. Brethren, a thousand years from this day, the believers in this room will with perfection of joy and gladness and reverence delight themselves unceasingly in the glory of this grace which God Himself proclaims to us.